Well, good morning, beloved. I'm sure some of you got some more exercise on your way to church this morning than what you were anticipating if you had to park in South Everett or up in Arlington, <laughs> not knowing what was going on here in Snohomish. But um, if you rode your motorcycle, maybe you found a better parking spot than most of us. I don't know. But welcome. I'm glad you found your way to us this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Alan Reeb. I'm one of the lay elders here at Restoration Road, and it is my distinct pleasure and honor to open the Word of God this morning and look to see what it has to say to us. If you haven't yet availed yourself to one of these study guides about the series in the Psalms that we're doing, I would invite you to stop at the desk downstairs and pick one of these up. Um, we are in a 21-week series going through selected Psalms. And this is a great study guide book, a good devotional book to kind of follow where we are and anticipate in, a, in a, a summary of what the sermons are going to be with. And I know many people use this for personal devotions. Uh, road groups use these, good study questions. So again, uh, grab one of these on your way out, and I think you'll enjoy it. We are in Psalm 40 this morning. This is, I think, our sixth... Um, week talking about uh, different psalms, and I hope by now, if you've been with us, you've kind of realized that the psalms are a unique but incredibly significant portion of Scripture. They're different, obviously, than a narrative like a gospel, or they're not a history lesson like one of the Old Testament books of the Torah. They're different than apocalyptic information, very different. They're poetry. And David, uh, King David, uh, wrote many, if not mo most, but not all, of the, of the psalms that we have in our Bibles. And they are a unique portion of Scripture. If I were to do a survey this morning of what kind of week did you have this last week, or maybe what kind of month you had, the person sitting next to you would have a different story to tell than what you have. It may have been a significantly uh, interesting week with, with a lot of successes. Maybe a new child was born into your immediate family or you became a grandparent. Maybe something significant, glorious like that. Maybe there was a promotion at work or a graduation that you experienced. Some uh, distinct point of happiness or great satisfaction. But very possibly... You or somebody next to you didn't experience great happiness this, this last week. Maybe there was a significant loss a family member may have passed. Or there was some great sorrow or sadness with a, a doctor's diagnosis or uh, a heartache that was experienced or possibly some suffering. If we all had a story to tell, they would be very different. And that is kind of the flavor of the book of Psalms. You go from one extreme to the other. You go back and forth between David crying out or David exclaiming a great victory. And we come to a significant psalm today, number 40, that has a little bit of everything. It has some great victories, some great deliverances, and some heartfelt pleas for help. He, he, he puts all of that into one significant psalm. 
I was encouraged recently to realize and read that Martin Luther, as he was called in Wittenberg to do teaching at the seminary there, um, when he was finishing his uh, monastic duties as a professor, he would retreat to his room, and he would there spend days. The two books that he says were most significant in the formation of his theology were Genesis and the book of Psalms. Some of you were thinking Romans. That had a very important part to play. But Genesis and Psalm, he says, were the most significant books that helped form his worldview and his base theology. As I said, David wrote Psalm number 40, where we are going to spend some time this morning. You're probably familiar with many of the stories from David. He is one of the most colorful Old Testament characters that we have. From just a little boy, he begins his narrative, he begins his journey as the youngest son in this family of older boys. And he had the opportunity to learn the ways of Jehovah God from infancy almost. He expressed faith in, in Jehovah God early on. You remember the stories of him uh, approaching David or Goliath on, on the battlefield. And then and Samuel came and anointed him to be king. But it was years before that would be realized. And the king at the time, Saul, realizing David was coming up next king anointed, didn't like that scenario very much and sought to do harm, sought to eliminate his rival. And so David spent many years running, hiding, in conflict with King Saul until finally Saul died and David was crowned king. So we read throughout many Psalms David's life experience. He, like all of us, at some point in his life, had great challenges, great victories, great significant blessings. And yet other times he was alone, he was sad and angry. I would draw your attention maybe this week in your study to look back to Psalm 38 and 39, the two Psalms that come before 40. They have a much, much different tone. Let me just read a couple of verses of Psalm 38 to see if you can get the flavor of what comes before, where we're going to spend our time this morning. David writes this in Psalm 38, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All day long I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. Ugh. Wow. Very descriptive language of suffering, of pain, of hardship, of frustration, of not knowing God's actions, what they're caused by, or what they're going to intended to produce. And then we come to Psalm 40, and here is a completely different tune, at least 
to start out with. Let me draw your attention to my outline. Let me tell you where I'm going, and then I'll go back and I'll fill in the blanks. It's too long of a psalm to read in one setting, so I'll break it up into these three parts. But just to give you an outline, the the roadmap of where we're going to be going this morning, I've entitled Psalm 40, A Reason to Sing, a Psalm of David. And in the first five verses, um, he I've entitled it, uh, Proclaiming a Joyful Deliverance. These are verses that you have probably heard, if not committed to memory before, some wonderful, significant verses where he is proclaiming a joyful deliverance. And then in verses 6, six through 12, he's proclaiming the bondservant. You say, what in the world is that? You'll see. Hang on. This is really exciting. This is really fun. And then... In verses 13 through 17, he's proclaiming a heartfelt plea for help. Here he jumps right back into almost what he was saying in Psalm 38 again. He said, I'm desperate. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. But Psalm 40 in its, in, in its expanse covers a lot of the bases of life. Deliverance. The proclamation of the bondservant and a plea for help. I have often said to new believers in Bible studies in different settings, I said, I think it's very important and significant that all believers, but especially if you're just beginning the Christian life, it's significant and important that all believers develop a theology of suffering. What do I mean by that? I mean that an understanding that life sometimes doesn't go our way. Sometimes it's a relatively insignificant thing. Sometimes it's a pretty major calamity. Life isn't always predictable. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And for a Christian to understand that suffering, maybe not an inevitable, but certainly a part of many people's lives including many people here today. How do we understand? How do we interpret that suffering? Is God angry with us? Has God abandoned us? Has God forgotten our plight as humans? Or does he care? Is he concerned? Does he listen to our prayers? Does he answer our prayer? Those are all significant questions to answer and to come to an understanding of because they reflect our understanding of a good, gracious, loving, benevolent God, but the fact that our lives are sometimes painful. And how do we reconcile those two? One of my key verses that I think about often, 1 Peter 4.12, Peter says, Don't be surprised when the fiery trials come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Isn't that our normal response as a human? This is something very, very strange, and it's unexpected, and I don't believe that God has got his hand in this, because it hurts. Peter says, don't be surprised. Understand. So we start out in Psalm 40 with the proclamation proclaiming a joyful deliverance. Read the first five verses with me. 
I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who will go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Wow. I don't know, commentators differ exactly when in David's experience he wrote this song that was sung in the temple for worship purposes. Was it upon his coronation? Maybe it was finally after his years of struggle, eluding Saul and his henchmen, that he came to this point of exuberance. I am delivered. I am set free. I have been set on a firm standing now, out of the miry clay, the pit of destruction. Maybe it was David reflecting upon his original salvation. I'm sure as a young boy, he came to realize that the sacrifices that he saw, he tended the sheep, and those sheep were taken and used for sacrifices in many occasions, and he probably understood from early on that those sacrifices were meant as a covering, an atonement for his sin. And as he placed his faith and trust in that burnt offering, his sins were covered and atoned for because that's what Jehovah God asked him to do. And he realized maybe that that was this experience of deliverance from his sin that he was so keenly aware of. We don't know exactly when he wrote this. But it was, it's a, it's, you feel the exuberance, you feel the ecstasy, you feel the excitement, you feel the, the joy in David's heart as he's writing these words. And we could spend a lot of time, and I would encourage you to meditate on some of these significant verses and let them feed your soul for what they're worth. Because of time, we can't spend as much as we want to on this whole section. But I want to draw your attention to verse number four. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Charles Spurgeon wrote this about that verse. Trusting in the Lord is the evidence, nay, the essence of salvation. He who is a true believer is evidently redeemed from the domain of sin and Satan. He doesn't say delivered from the effects or the influence. Delivered from the domain. It no longer has domain over the believer, the domain of darkness. Maybe that's what David was talking about up in verse 1 and 2. But trust in the Lord is the evidence, nay, the essence of salvation. The New Testament corollary to trust in this verse would be believe. Those who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ have been born again. That's the essence of this verse. It's proclaiming salvation. And he says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. There's an overused word, isn't it? Bless. Bless. 
blessed. I love the word, but it's so overused that we lose its meaning. How enriched, how endowed, how anointed, how encouraged, how God-given life, how grace-endowed, all wonderful synonyms of the word blessed. How God-touched is the man or woman who makes the Lord his trust, who believes in that blessedness, who does not turn to the proud or to go astray after a lie. It may bring a memory of what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, grace endowed, God-touched is the man and woman who is poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are reviled for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. I have to wait? Oh, no. There's a blessedness that falls upon the believer here and now. But great is our reward also in heaven. Hear this quote from Spurgeon about this verse. He says, A man may be as poor as Lazarus, as hated as Mordecai, as sick as Hezekiah, as lonely as Elijah. But while his hand of faith can keep its hold on God, none of his outward afflictions can prevent his being numbered among the blessed. But the wealthiest, the most prosperous man who has no faith is accursed, be he who he may. I love that. I love that. Those whose hands of faith can keep hold of God, none of his outward afflictions can prevent him from being numbered among the blessed. Wow. Let that sink in to your soul. Outward afflictions. Yeah. We've had that. We've walked there. We've experienced that. Suffering, pain, disappointment. Outward afflictions. Do they affect my relationship with God? Should they? Ought they? No. They shouldn't. Momentary light afflictions is what it's been called in Scripture. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Verse 5, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. David was never doubting that Jehovah God's thoughts were continually toward him, even though experientially he didn't always experience that. But here he makes the proclamation that your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us, none can compare with you. See if you believe this Spurgeon quote. He said, when I think it's a poor, little, weak, empty head that is thinking. <laughs> 
But when God thinks, the gigantic mind which formed the universe is thinking upon me. Isn't that a great thought? The gigantic mind of God compared to my puny, weak, empty head in comparison. David begins this beautiful psalm by making a proclamation of a joyful deliverance. Then in verse 6, he makes a transition. Let's read verse 6 through 12. He says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails me. Where does he go in this turn of events? Just after, after a proclaiming a joyous deliverance, he now is talking about something completely different. You may have recognized some of the language in those verses. You say, yeah, yeah, didn't, didn't we just... Yes, the book of Hebrews has something to say, quoting from Psalm number 40. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. The writer says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What does David do here? He turns into the role of a prophet and he starts to prophesy about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. If you've been with us back last week, Psalm 24, the week before, Pastor Nate, Psalm 23, the week before, Psalm 22, all messianic psalms, all have embedded within them prophecy about the coming Messiah. He does the same thing here. He talks about the coming Messiah in the language that he uses. But a very interesting sentence in verse 6 in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. That's the way the ESV translate that. What is he talking about? Commentators are all over the map on this one. Who knows, really? 
where I've landed is I think David is referring back to a bond slave ceremony. What is that? Back in um, Exodus chapter 21, Moses is giving the commandments for civil order and civil responsibilities within the nation of Israel. Part of that was the, his instructions on how to handle, how to deal with, how to regulate, how to govern household slaves or servants. And he said, if you were to hire or to have a household slave or a servant, they would be in your employment for six years, and then they're free to go after seven years. If at some point before that point of freedom, they want to buy their freedom, if they present you with enough money, they can buy their freedom and therefore earn their freedom. But after six years, if that servant says, I really don't want to leave your employment. I want to remain a servant or a slave of yours, but I voluntarily submit myself to that um, title, to that occupation. He's not obligated to do it, but he freely does it as an act of service. Moses says, okay, if that's the situation, take that servant up against a wall and put an awl in his ear and make a hole in it as a sign that he is a bondservant, um, an indentured servant, as it were, but he's doing it willfully, freely, voluntarily. Here you, 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 you saw that the word ear is plural, ears. You have opened my ears, two of them. Well, the, the, there's not a direct correlation. Maybe it's not referring to that bond slave ceremony, but both ears in this picture are being pierced. What a picture I saw of the nail-scarred hands of our Savior on the cross. Here, David is looking at this picture, saying, the bond slave, I'm proclaiming the coming bond servant. And he is Jesus, identified from Hebrews chapter 10. That's what he's talking about here. This bond slave freely, voluntarily obligates himself in service to his heavenly father and serves the community. Look at the language that he uses. Your deliverance, your faithfulness, your salvation, verse 10. Your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your mercy, your steadfast love, your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Those are salvation terms. They're talking about the salvation that Jesus accomplished on the cross. He's looking forward down the scope of history to the coming bond slave, Messiah, Jesus as we know him. His voluntary service, not my will but thine be done. The piercing of his hands like the piercings of a servant's ears to signify that this is a voluntary effort on his part and he is providing salvation. And this is a picture of the salvation that was come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, I have told this glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I'm not hiding this. I'm not concealing this. I'm not doing this in a corner. This is something for everybody to understand and realize. Well, what are the things that David expressly says about this bondservant? Six things I have picked out. There are probably many more, but six significant things about God's bondservant. First, this shows God's ultimate dissatisfaction with the animal sacrifice, looking forward to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He says, sin and these 
offerings you did not desire. Secondly, this shows God's Son came in a prepared body, a body you have prepared for me. Thirdly, it shows that the public open coming of the Messiah. Behold, I come, David says. Fourth, this shows that the Messiah was a great theme of the Old Testament scriptures. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, Jesus said. Fifth, this shows the dedication of the Messiah to the will of God. I delight to do your will. And sixth, this shows the Messiah's love and obedience for the word of God. Your law is written on my heart. Beautiful descriptions of the Messiah. What he was coming to do, what he accomplished, the openness of his ministry, the public aspect of it, the fact that he came in a physical body, all of that is in these verses, plus a lot more, but those are the ones that I wanted to highlight this morning. He declares these truths in the great congregation, your deliverance, your faithfulness, your salvation, your steadfast love is there plainly spoken for all to see and hear. The third part of this beautiful psalm, verses 13 through 17, David proclaims a heartfelt plea for help. Read with me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, Ah, ah, who may all, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love you, love your salvation, say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help, my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. What I observed in this psalm is he starts with this proclamation of deliverance, ends with a proclamation plea for help, and in between these two pieces of bread is the Messiah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sandwich. I don't mean to be irreverent, but the first part mirrors the second part in its opposition. The first is deliverance. The last part is a plea for help. What joins these two together? The coming Messiah and the proclamation of deliverance and salvation. How does this affect us? Our life experience is contained within this psalm. Joys and victories and deliverances and sorrow and pain and suffering. And in between them is the beauty of Jesus as bondservant that brings our life meaning, significance, blessing. It's seen the whole spectrum of, the, of our life is here in this psalm. We struggle, we cry out for help. We get delivered, we cry in proclamation of God's deliverance. It is there for all to see. Wonderful deliverance and heartfelt plea for help are joined together with this in-between beautiful pronouncement of the coming Messiah who will be a once and for all 
sacrifice that will be accepted by God the Father, that will be for the great congregation. Everyone is available to see and participate and to hear. This isn't just for a select few people who have their act together and know the secret code. It's for every believer to walk this walk, to be able to proclaim deliverance and to say, God, you have saved me mightily. Think of your salvation experience. Think, for some of you, it was many years ago. Some of you, not so many. Think of the salvation experience you have. Is that worth proclaiming deliverance? Did he deliver you out of the miry clay, out of the slimy pit, and set your feet on a solid piece of ground? Yes and amen. I know some of your stories. And it's true that when people hear, and they will trust as well because of your testimony. That's part of the picture of what we're supposed to do, to proclaim. I know some of you too are suffering. Some of you are in pain. Some of you are hurting. Disappointments. Cry out with a proclaim of a plea for help. How do we do that? Where do we go? In, in both of those, we come to Jesus. We come to Jesus, our Savior, Deliverer, Priest, and King. He walks with us. He hears us. He understands us. He has walked where we walk. He is not alien to us. It is part of the Christian life to both experience great deliverance as well as heartfelt pain until we are ultimately delivered. Great is your reward in heaven, Jesus said. Verse 17, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. One more Spurgeon quote. He says, they thought upon thee, and he thinks upon thee still. When the father thinks upon his children, he thinks upon thee. When the great judge of all thinks of the justified ones, he thinks of thee, O Christian. Can you grasp the thought? The eternal Father thinks of you. Be pleased, O Lord. I love that, that tagline too. Be pleased, O Lord. Verse 13. Be pleased. Can you imagine? Just think. The God of the universe is delighted to deliver you. He takes pleasure in delivering you. Be pleased, O oh Lord, to forgive me, to correct me, to provide for me, to heal me, to guide me, to bless me. Six things that I pulled out of David's plea for divine help. God, we're not twisting our Heavenly Father's arm behind his back to have him do good things for us. It pleases him. Pleases him. Big Daddy Weave, a contemporary Christian artist, wrote a song a number of years ago that are, it's almost a modern version of Psalm 40. He said this, you don't answer all my questions, but you hear me when I speak. 
You don't keep my heart from breaking, but when it does, you weep with me. You're so close that I can feel you when I've lost the words to pray. And though my eyes have never seen you, I've seen enough to say, I know that you are good. I know that you are kind. I know that you are so much more than what I leave behind. I know that I am loved. I know that I am safe. Because even in the fire to live as Christ, to die as gain, I know that you are good. I don't understand the sorrow, but you're calm within the storm. Sometimes this weight is overwhelming, but I don't carry it alone. You're still close when I can't feel you. I don't have to be afraid. And though my eyes have never seen you, I've seen enough to say, I know that you are good. I know that you are kind. I know that you are so much more than what I leave behind. I know that I am loved. I know that I am safe. Because even in the fire, to live as Christ, to die as gain, I know that you are good. I know. On my darkest day, from my deepest pain, through it all, my heart will choose to sing your praise. I know that you are good. I know that you are kind. I know that you are so much more than what I've left behind. I know that I am loved and I know that I am safe because even in the fire to live is Christ, to die is gain. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. God, our Heavenly Father, today we find ourselves in many different places in life. We are encouraged and blessed to know that you know us inside and out, upside and down. You know where our feet walk. You know the cry of our heart. You know the deepest joys in our life, and you know the deepest pains. Along with David, we turn to the bond slave. We turn to the Messiah. We turn to Jesus Christ, your son, and say, he is my deliverer. He is my salvation. He is the exact representation of you that I know, and we walk with him. God, thank you this morning for loving us, for being kind to us, for taking pleasure in blessing us, for fulfilling prayer requests, for honoring our faith. We declare our trust in you. May others see and follow you as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.